My name is Jay Howard, and you're listening to Making Cash, a podcast about the Reynolds College of Arts, Social Sciences, and Humanities, or CASH. I like to talk to professors, graduate students, and community members in the Springfield community about their work. And today I'm talking to John Maybe, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication, Media, Journalism, and Film. Thanks for joining me, John. Happy to be here, Jay. So I like to start off with a segment I've come to call Chalk and Talk, which is where we have the opportunity to um, talk about you in the classroom. So when I was researching, I saw you teach a, a wide variety of classes over the years. And so the question we'll start off with is, what is one of your favorite classes to teach? Yeah, so I really enjoy teaching Media 3D3, which is our television production class. It's a multicam live TV production where students will come in and learn how to create uh, a live television program. And so we start with kind of uh, an introducing each other to each other. One student will be the interviewer, one student will be the interviewee, and then the rest of the students are on different cameras and running microphones and are back in the control room, changing the cameras, making graphics, getting all these things kind of going as, as they happen. Um, and I think one of my favorite reasons it is, or I should say, I think one of my reasons why it is a favorite class is because it's as much coaching as it oh, is yeah. teaching. So like coaching like a football team or basketball team, right? Because you basically, when the class begins, you have 16, 18 strangers, right? Sometimes students know each other, but more often they don't, right? Because everybody's on their phone, right? right. So, so they come in and, you know, within that semester, I try to create a cohesive production unit team. Um, where, you know, in the beginning, everyone's very apprehensive, not really sure what they're doing, how they're doing it. And then the more they do it, the more confidence they start building. And they have to do every position in the class. They have to be talent in front of the camera, behind the camera, directing, producing, editing, live technical directing, all of that stuff. Um, and so, you know, what ends up happening is we then create like a show rundown and they run a TV show for their last kind of assignment. So the first assignment we do is them introducing to each other as we introduce all the positions in the studio. The second uh, assignment that we do is basically a quick news rundown. So they scour the internet, they scour Associated Press, CNN, those kind of websites, pull stories that they really are interested in. They then have to find graphics and videos that match those stories. And we do like a seven minute newscast, right? Where, yeah. you know, we don't do the actual uh, original journalism, but we, we put together what they do in your evening news, whether it be broadcast or cable. And so that's always really fun to kind of get them to think about oh well how is a news program put together how do we even like think about like you know things things like the old the old adage if it lead or if it bleeds it leads right so do you start your newscast with the most horrifying stories to rapture your audience's attention and be like now that we've gotten through everyone dying <laughs> here are the lotto and a human interest piece about the zoo uh having a giraffe born right that's right right or, or do you start with the lighter stuff right and then you go to the heavy stuff um, yeah, and then the third assignment is kind of a variety show, much like Saturday Night Live or Mad TV back in the day, where I basically say, okay, you've got a 30-minute program, so you have to program all of the skits, you've got to create your own commercials, you have three different blocks you have to get through, and it's really like 
enjoyable for me to watch because when the class starts, like, you know, it, it, there's, there's a big gap between where I am and the students are. And by the second assignment, we're more level, like, hand, like you know, they, more, and they understand more of what they're kind of doing. And I am more of just kind of a guiding hand than the leading hand. And by the time the third assignment rolls around, they're in charge. And it's my job to kind of rein them in on things that are and are not possible. <laughs> But the fact that most students, when they get to that point, really feel confident in what they're doing and put together a really solid show that they do all of themselves. They'll have to do things like some kind of demonstration. So usually they'll do like origami or cooking or some live studio demonstration. Okay. And I make them do like a, so I bring, bring in some kind of musician, whether it's a full band or a solo person, to think about the different ways you're going to shoot that, incorporate into your show. Uh, yeah, you know, so it, it's it's quite the gamut, um, and it's a really intense show or a class. It's a really intense class to go through, but I think it's worth it, right? Because and, and that's where the coaching part comes in. Part of my goal with this class is to make them just slightly more freaked out than they would be in the real world, so that when they get in the real world, they're like, "Oh, this is easy." <laughs> man, man, John's not behind me going like, call this, call that, do this, do that. Now, granted, there's money on the line, so the pressure is way bigger, right? But that's something I try to really instill in the students is that, you know, if you get through here, if you can direct this program for half an hour and feel confident in that ability, then I have confidence in their ability to go get a job. Hmm. But news station, ESPN, whatever it may be, right? Any kind of live TV production. Do the students, um, do they take the finished product and share it publicly um, the way a student might share, a, like have an English reading or something like that? Or do they just take it and put it in a portfolio or just take it and run and make new stuff afterwards? Kind of all the above any sort of expose right uh yeah you know if the show's good right and that's the problem right good is very subjective mm -hmm. right um and that's kind of i think one of the hardest things to get students to think about how viable a project is going to be mm -hmm. is they'll put their friends who they think are funny on the camera but if you don't know that person it's not that funny mm -hmm. right? the class thinks it's great because they know this person and they're doing all these really weird things yeah but if you were to show it to someone outside the classroom, they would probably be like, is that is that student okay? Are they is this supposed to be funny? <laughs> it's an in inside joke. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, you know, so so again, part of the challenge is to get students to think like, look, you know, there there is there is total validity to the idea of create something you would want to watch yourself. Yeah. But that's a very niche market, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's one of those things, right? Where it's like the more broad appeal you have, right? The more audience you can bring in, the more viable this project may be at festivals or conferences or something okay. else, right? And yeah. so, so my job is to say, like, look, if you guys think that's funny, I want you to run with it because I'm not gonna, con I'm not gonna check you on content. I'll check you on production value because it's my job to make sure that that production value is is increasing. But one of the hardest things I think any professor does, especially in our fields, right, is to say, like, okay, that is acceptable or that is unacceptable. And so I think that's, you know, and I know it's kind of a weird turn from, from like, you know, getting student stuff out there. But I think, yeah, I always recommend that they do because when faculty give feedback, it's a very protective bubble kind of feedback. Like, we're not out to hurt your feelings, right? But mm -hmm. then when the real world comes back and says, this, where would you show this? Why mm -hmm. would you show this? That's when I think a lot of lessons are kind of learned in that area. Does um, this this question may apply more to a different related class? But as I think about the projects that I hear about in, from the media faculty, um, some of them are really big, and they may it occurs to me that they may span over multiple semesters or have multiple classes working together on this, the same project. 
Does that ever happen? And what kind of, um, if so, what kind of examples come to mind? Yeah, so there's a couple, right? So um, I would say that our department's really collaborative. Um, I would say that, you know, there, there are definitely people who do kind of solo projects and solo artistry, and I think that's great. Um, but film, by its very nature, is a very collaborative process. Yeah. And so um, what's really exciting is we have both our electronic arts degree program that has a video studies track, and we have our digital film production classes, right, that focus on film and television production. And so EA students, electronic arts students, will often take our digital film classes to help kind of expand those skills in video, audio, things like that. And a lot of our digital film students will get connected with the EA final film projects, which is called um, Art 498. And so they have a year-long process, right, to go from pre-production to production and post-production on these much larger kind of projects. The reverse of that is we have Media 562, which is kind of our capstone digital filmmaking class for our seniors. And so a lot of EA students, to get more experience, to build their resume and portfolio skills, will jump on those projects as well. So you have that kind of cross-pollination within the department. Um, sometimes students will come to faculty and do independent projects where students will get an independent study and there'll be a, like, you know, sometimes I've had like groups of like 10 students all take an independent study project with me all working on a short film and my supervision of that film gives them both credit as well as like guidance on making that film. Yeah. So that's another way. And then another way of course is faculty initiated projects. So two years ago uh, Professor Peep and myself made it, shot a film called Unmanned. So we both wrote it. She directed it. Uh, director of photography did it. Joy Miana produced it. Ed uh, Andrew Twybel uh, edited it. Dr. Uh, Deb Larson was an actor in it and we only hired students and alumni to all make this film and it was just a great experience for everybody and we also got into like more than 30 film festivals nice. and that's one of the things I love about this right is that like it's not just for the professors and their creative research, but every win I get goes on the students of the like students resume, the mm -hmm. student CV, right? So we we as a, as a group got into thirty festivals, and it's really fun because all the students who worked on that project also have all thirty of those listed on their own resumes and CVs. So we're pretty collaborative uh, in, in yeah. these projects. That's awesome. You mentioned a, a handful of, of related classes there, and that leads me to a question about the, the program at large. This is an aspirational question. So um, I'll just list off the name of a few other classes. Um, Client-based video, digital film and media, television production, film editing, um, fundamentals, um, study cam. So the, the question is, when we think about the digital or the film and television production program, if you had a magic wand and infinite funding, how would you build the, the ideal production program on the base of the program that you currently have? So let me make sure I get this question right. So I have a magic wand and all the money I could possibly want? Yes, but you can only use it to build a television production Aww. program. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, you know, there's some cancer I can get rid of. There's a bunch of things that I'd love to, ma you know, magic wand away. Um, or the Powerball. Wouldn't mind winning that. Absolutely, well. yeah. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so... If I had a magic wand and all the money to make a film program, I, I would really want to make us like the predominantly main film school at the state, state, state institution in the Midwest, right? So my alma mater, Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, uh, the Salukis, right? They've got like a Saluki network in Hollywood. And if you ask people in Illinois, like where they're going to go to college for film, at least when I was there, 
been a while now, right? Like over 10 years ago for my grad program. But people came to SIU explicitly for the film program, for the equipment, for the faculty. You know, it was just a really kind of a nice regional film school with a very affordable budget or affordable tuition. It's not like, you know, you're your bigger, more private schools. So what I would love to do is, you know, first thing I'd probably do is hire four more production faculty that would allow us to teach more advanced skills, um, like in post-production. It's probably one of our more weaker areas right now is we don't have someone who just teaches special effects editing, um, hmm. you know, uses those AI algorithms to put together more complex rendering and more, co more complex composite shots of these films kind of things, because that's kind of where we're going. Right. Uh, so it'd be kind of nice to, to future proof us a little bit with some, some faculty who can kind of do that. Uh -huh. um, I mean, the easiest thing to say is I would just buy a bunch of more gear, right? <laughs> just more cameras, more support equipment, more steady cams, more everything. Um, but, you know, it's 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 an interesting position to be in. Right. Um, because, you know, media is the future and like it's so so okay so first thing i should say i should definitely preface by saying that obviously as, as a media scholar as a film pr production person right I, I have a dog in this fight right mm -hmm. i think in the age of media dominance what we do in our program is so important and goes so much beyond just this is how to make a tv show this is how to make a film and i think that it's really important for people to learn those skills mm. but in in tandem with learning those skills they also need to be trained how to see ai footage how to see something that's been changed altered rendered has some kind of special effect have some kind of base knowledge to understand how media is being manipulated so if i had a magic wand with unlimited budget right it would be more equipment it would be a full led 4k panel wall in there so we could do all the cool wow. stuff they do in like mandalorian yeah. right and all these other cool special <laughs> effects movies you know it'd be steady cams it'd be ronins and movies all basically what they are are devices you put a camera on it keeps them stabilized and uh -huh. really cool shots and all these fun things and that's the easy one, right? The hard part, though, is to also broaden that horizon of our students to become more visual literate, right? More media literate. So it's not just a consuming of media and then turning around and creating a, a content once in a while, but taking a hard step back and going like, look, our degree is not just making TV. It's also other elements within the sphere of media analysis, criticism, history, theory, and everything else. Hmm. So I know it's kind of a weird roundabout kind of question, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, obviously the first thing I'd like to do is create more classes, right? So sorry, I should say that's the third thing I'd like to do. So the first thing I'd like to do is hire more faculty. The second one is get us all this great gear. And the third one, of course, would be to create more classes for our students to get the equipment and knowledge they need to know. So, so currently there's a, like a insert topic one and you want the topic two. Like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a se second class. Right. So um, with the magic wand, you're building uh, on the foundation that already exists? Yeah, so I think, I think right now, I think right now, our program has an excellent foundational base, right? Um, what I mean by that is you can go through our program, and depending on the classes you take, you could probably get on set. Now, granted, I'm just talking about film production, TV production, not the theory, not grad school, not that side of the house. But if it's just production, Right now, I feel pretty confident that you complete our program and most students are going to be able to get out of here and become an assistant camera person, an assistant director. Uh, uh, you know, the idea would to not be a production assistant, which is kind of the lowest position on film set, pays the least. It's the crappiest work. Like, I've been a PA. 
uh, probably over 100 different shows, and I've done everything from picking up someone's dry cleaning six hours away to chasing chickens under a barn after we oh, shot wow. a scene. Yeah, yeah, I've got crazy stories about production, <laughs> right? Um, but but my dream, right? And actually, let me back up a little bit. So most of our students can get enough base knowledge to get out there and get kind of an entry-level job. My dream, though, would be to get students out of here and not to be the lowest of the assistants. So let me break something down. So let's say you have uh, the um, cinematography department, okay? So cinematography department of film set is led by the director of photography, right? With a DP, cinematographer, interchangeable. Then you have the gaffer, who's basically in charge of setting up all the lights and support equipment. Then you have the different grips, which grab everything and move it. You have the electrics, which hang lights and get all the electricity things going, right? And then you have the production assistants. My goal would be to get a student in as a grip or an electric, right? So they have the experience to go on set. They know how to set up dollies. They know how to set up cranes, jibs, all these different production equipments. And the more we have of that in our department, the better I can teach those students how to learn those skills. And that when they show up on set, they're not doing what I did when I started. So I, I was in the Navy way back in the day. I got out in 2003. I showed up on set and was like, I was in the Navy. I can do stuff. And they were like, Okay, like what, <laughs> right? We don't really need Navy stuff here for a pooper scooper commercial, which is my first job. We talk about later if you want to, um, right? So, so that's really what I'd like to do. Right now, we have uh, you know one class in editing, one class in directing, one class in cinematography. What I would love to have is two to three classes in each of those different subject subject matters, um, because the more not not only is it the more base skills students learn, because some students are well, we can talk about it, right? Some students, and this is something I tell students, right? This is kind of a teaching philosophy for me. One of the first things I ask students is, is this a passion or a hobby? And I ask mm. the students to think about that for a second, right? Uh, a passion means you watch the behind-the-scenes features on the DVD or Blu-ray or streaming. You, you, you not only watch a film to analyze the story, the plot, the characters, what you're looking at, the technical ability, the editing, the camera, the light, and the shadow, everything going on on screen, right? And then your brain continuously races with all these questions of how do they do that? Why do they make these decisions? Why would the character make this choice and break the character mold that I thought this character was supposed to fulfill, right? That is a passion. A hobby is I like to watch movies. Mm -hmm. And I like to kind of once in a while figure out how they're made, right? And there's nothing wrong with either end of that spectrum. It's just up to them to figure out what they want to do. And so one of the things that I talk about in my entry class when I'm doing the lecture for Media 365, which is kind of our intro class to media production, mm -hmm. television film production, um, I say to them, like, there's nothing wrong with being a C student, if you want to be a C student, right? If you want to be a C student, show up, just do the work, right? And then get C's because they do earn degrees and you roll out of here and you work at Best Buy's Geek Squad for 20, 30 hours, you know, a week and you're getting paid 15 to 25 bucks an hour. And if you are happy doing that, then hey, my friend, you have made it, right? And I think that's one of the hardest things that I really try to convey to my students is you need to define success for yourself. Right. Because if you want to be a C student and you want to go that route, that's great. That means that you have a social life. You get to party. You get to work more. You get to do all these extra things, which college is supposed to be, along with the degree and the classes and everything else. Right. The opposite end of the spectrum of, of that is the gung ho go getter where you're turning things around, like creating six things a year. You're putting them out into the world. You're doing film festivals, conferences. You're continuously pitching. You're always producing. You're hustling 24 7 because you want to be the next Spielberg. Who 
Krugler, whoever, right? Whatever director, producer, DP that's out there. Yeah. But that's a nonstop, non-ending, continual pitch, right? You are selling not just yourself, but your skills, your ideas, and stories you want to tell. That's a hmm. lot of work. That's a passion, right? Yeah. That means no boyfriend, no girlfriend, no partner, no parties, not a lot of work because all you are doing is writing, producing, creating, getting that into the world on YouTube, Vimeo, all these different places so that you with that piece of paper have a body of work to back it up and say, here I am, Hollywood, hire me. That is one of the most soul crushing positions to be in <laughs> because Hollywood loves to say no, mm. right? And then I tell them, <laughs> there's my preferred track, the middle way. Right, which you get your B student, you show up, maybe you blow off a couple speeches in English papers. Don't do that, kids. I'm just joking, right? <laughs> but you understand that there are priorities here that you really want to focus on, and so that that's me is fine. You want to blow off a speech, you have to do in speech class. No offense to communication, right? <laughs> I get that, but you can't blow off a script. You can't blow off this film assignment. You can't blow off this production class that's going to teach you the skills to get you that job that you say you want. Right. So yeah. my advice to students is do what I did. Right. Enjoy college, but get yourself on projects. Keep your focus on those film classes, those TV program, you know, classes. Get those skills that you need to get and work on the work on the gung ho person's film. Right. So you've got someone in your class who's like, I'm going to be the next Ryan Coogler. Attach yourself to that person as their assistant director or their <laughs> assistant camera operator right, or their gaffer or their grip or something else because you're not looking for the limelight. You're not looking for your name above the marquee and everyone's screaming, oh, my God, it's Johnny made a movie. Click, 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 right? That's the problem. Everyone thinks that that is the fame, right? But that's such a small percentage of the people who actually work in this industry. Like, for example, let me ask you a question, Jay. Do you have, like, a favorite TV or streaming show? Um, Which is one. I mean, I'm sure everyone yeah. has a lot, right? I mean, um, yeah, I'll, I'll pick, let's pick Ted Lasso. Okay, Ted Lasso, yeah. right? Say, so, I want you to think of Ted Lasso, all the episodes you've seen, okay? Uh -huh. Now, do you have like one or two of your favorite episodes in your mind? Sure. Who directed that episode? Yeah, no idea. No idea, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you call that director who's directing a Ted Lasso, Lasso episode successful? Yeah, probably pretty good at his job or her. Right, but, but you don't know their name? Right. You don't know where they went to school? You have no idea what they worked on beforehand, right? Right. So that's, that's part of the context I try to get across to my students, right? And that's the thing I try to bring into these classes right. is that, like, look, guys, I'm here because I want you to work, right? And I'm going to show you all the skills you need to know to get those jobs. The challenge for you is to figure out, well, how hard do you want to work? If you want to bust your ass 24-7 and become that next big thing, that's one path. That's what this path looks like. If you want to do nothing and just chill but get that degree, well, that's this path. You need to find the Goldilocks, right? Yeah. Between those two places and what's just right. So it's a it's a big industry and um, yeah. lots of lots of jobs, lots of places to work, lots right. of different definitions of success. Yeah, love it. One of my favorite things about. Um, I don't know, teaching and how I select episode topics, too, for the podcast is I look for special topics classes because sometimes they're a little bit off the beaten path, um, but they do tend to connect with the interests of the faculty member that um, aren't otherwise um, in the classroom. So I saw a couple. I mean, there's actually two or three, like summer classes, maybe not special topics, but one or two credit hour classes that you've put together. And the one that drew my eye, I think you've taught it maybe twice, if not more, is D&D &D storytelling. Yeah. 
So uh, let's let's get into the, to that that can of worms. Yeah. Um. So I'm an avid fan of the Dungeons and Dragons, right? So, um, yeah, I'm like a weird. I'm a weird person, I guess, when it comes to that, right? <laughs> because like my films tend to be very much about like my experience in the military and veterans' issues, and really trying to get society to examine how we treat those people. All my work tends to be sci-fi, fantasy, dragons, mythology, gods, Greek things, all these fun things, right? And so that's that's kind of like where I fall on that creative spectrum, which is kind of insane, I guess. Um, but uh, it occurred to me while I was playing Dungeons and Dragons with a few friends of mine, and we were doing going to do a new campaign, so I got a character sheet out, right? I'm going through this character sheet, and this is after I've, I've finished grad school, right? And I'm, I'm teaching my first gig over at St. Louis University, and you know. I'm looking at the sheet and I'm like, and I'm teaching a class on like how to write character, how to write plot, right? How to kind of do these things. And so I looked at the sheet, I'm looking at like, you know, my kind of syllabi at the same time, trying to put both these things together. And it dawned on me like D&D has all the answers you need to create a story, mm. right? Everything you need. I mean, you're creating a story. Right, yeah. exactly, right? And then you have people go through it and people get to create characters, right? Mm -hmm. So World building. Right. So this is so. Let me give you an example of why I love D and D. Okay. So, are you familiar at all with Dungeons and Dragons? I am. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So you have classifications of someone's kind of behavior attitude, right? So you have like good, bad, chaotic, good, chaotic, bad, chaotic, neutral, right? And so I think it's really funny because each of us has this persona that we think we are, right? And so. This is a question that I ask students to get their mind working of how D&D &D works. So the first thing I say is, okay, guys, we're in class, right? Take attendance first day. I use about 18 students in there. I kind of introduce myself, the syllabi. We get through that stuff. And the first thing I say before I cut them out, this question comes up. Okay, everyone in here, I want you to take out a piece of paper, and I want you to write down your character attribute. Are you good, bad? you know chaotic good chaotic bad somewhere within the spectrum and the opposite of chaotic is lawful right right lawful yeah. right right so everyone writes it down right and i say i don't want to know i don't tell me do not tell me this is something that only you should know okay <laughs> because i'm gonna break it i'm gonna break it and they're like they kind of look at me like what do you mean break it we haven't done anything i just wrote this thing down what are you doing right and i, and I put it on a, on a powerpoint slide so they can see all the different you know alignments right and so I say, okay, I want you to take that piece of paper, fold it up, keep it under your hand. And here's the situation, okay? So we're all sitting here in this classroom. I am standing here at the podium. And all of a sudden, a door opens, and in comes a very well-dressed man in a very nice suit. And next to this man is a 12-year-old boy. And in this man's hand is a black, inconspicuous briefcase. He comes, and he puts the briefcase down on the table in the front of the class. And he looks at you all and says, this 12-year-old boy stole a pack of 25-cent gum from the gas station. Bum, bum, bum. He was just caught, right? This boy needs to be slapped as hard as humanly possible <laughs> across the face for punishment for stealing this 25-cent pack of gum. Who in this class is going to slap that kid, I ask? Once in a while, you have one, you know, smart ass who's like, I'll do it, eh, right, just to be funny. But most of the time, 99% of the kids don't raise their hand in class. None of the students are going to do it, right? Uh -huh. So I say, right, right, that goes with your alignment. Now, the man takes the briefcase, spins it around, opens up the locks, and opens the case. And in that case, it's $25 million. And he says, the first one to slap this kid gets this money. Who in this class is going to slap that kid? 
Everybody hands go up. Everyone, everyone, right? And let, you know, well, I shouldn't say that. Once in a while, I have one person like, no, I got morals. I got morals. But I'm like, okay, but really, if this wasn't a hypothetical and I had the $25 million in front of you, you're not going to slap this kid as hard as you can't take that money to go pay your bills, <laughs> right? And that question breaks the alignment because now they understand that with the proper motivation, anyone can do anything. Hmm. And that is why characters break on screen. That's why you have shows like Game of Thrones or Supergirl or all these different kinds of TV shows that don't do enough character building far off enough in the future so that when these characters make certain decisions, it's antithetical to who they are supposed to be, who we have projected ourselves upon, who they are supposed to be on the page, on the screen, what they have presented themselves as this entire time. Now, if you have a situation that makes that person say, I have a moral code, I am lawfully good, I will never violate this code, but then given the right situation, will break that code in order to preserve themselves to benefit themselves or do yeah. something huh. right do yeah. you do you have any opinions on daenerys stormborn last season is this yeah. an example yeah. a case in point <laughs> right well <laughs> funny thing is right so side note on that um remember the the coffee cup fiasco did you hear about the coffee cup fiasco? yeah like on 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 the frame yeah. there was yeah 150 something people on that set extras crew main principal cast not one person was like hey we should move this coffee cup off the screen off of the ancient fantasy uh right. world yeah and in that i tell my students even us professionals f up sometimes and that was like a probably half a million dollar mess up because they had to go in and rotoscope digitally remove that coffee cup from every single screen right so there's that <laughs> my, right um so so yes absolutely right so so you you the mad queen right if she followed in her great great grandfather whoever it was footsteps right the, the, yeah, the yeah. mad king tenaria to dario i forget his name targaryen targaryen thank you right the mad king targaryen right yeah so and that was yeah. my thing was she she was she was projected to to become the mad the mad queen but then everyone freaked out when she did at the end right um you know so yeah. it's like a, a lose lose situation for the storytellers right maybe they was just too fast developed too fast in the last it season. was well there was a lot of rumors right that the the two showrunners were tired of doing it yeah and just kind of turned it over to someone else and they just yeah yeah oh, well. It's it's no Parks and Rec, but you know whatever. <laughs> so yeah, that the concept of of a character breaking because it wasn't, um, I, it, isn't that? Is there a way? Is there a sense in which you can think of that as real life? Like sometimes people do act outside of their character when they're in extraordinary circumstances. All the time. And sometimes that's the storytelling is they do that on purpose. Yeah. Um, or like you create the character and then be as mean to them as possible to to tell a tell a compelling story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I've never played D and D myself, although I have uh, I have some close friends who play it, and it's a it's a wonderful creative outlet for the um, for the person who's leading the campaign. Um, my my friends play the Call of Cthulhu um, sort of. Oh, and I've listened to some podcasts um, okay, yeah. where the actors, voice actors, and stuff get together and and do their do their campaign. So for that reason, I feel like I've played. Yeah. Um, so anyway. Are there any other um, storytelling things that can be learned from D&D that you bring into the classroom? I know that you said one of your uh, research interests, too, was the hero's journey, um, which I feel like crosses over into this as well, the Joseph Campbell type stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I became fascinated with the hero's journey as I started to examine my own 
and I wish this was an original quote, but it was from another veteran I read many years ago who said, like, you know, I joined the Army. I was in the Navy, but this guy was in the Army. And he said, I, I, I joined the Army to become Luke Skywalker. And when I was in Iraq, I realized that I'm a fucking stormtrooper. And I feel like that, right, that in of itself is the, is, is the one of the hardest examinations of the hero's journey, right, is because heroic status lies within the eyes of the beholder who calls that person a hero hmm. right and so so you know so my own experiences with going to afghanistan with you know kicking off the war in iraq fortunately i didn't go into that country luckily right um but you know it's just it's these it's this idea that you know in this country in that time everyone saw me as a hero but the other side saw me as a foreign invading force mm-hmm. And I didn't think about that when I was in the military, but when I got out, went to college and started taking these history classes and learning about the region, that's when I started to question my own choices and, you know, hero's journey and things like that. Yeah. So flash forward like 20 years later, and I think it's, it's um, you know, it's kind of an interesting concept of who we hold up as hero and why. Right. Is it a folk hero who's like a Robin Hood kind of archetype who's robbing from the rich, giving to the poor, something that the poor can really rally around. But meanwhile, the rich people are like, who keeps stealing all of our shit? Right. You know, so it's just like it's just one of those weird things. Um, And then reverse that. Right. Reverse that. Well, you know, the sheriff, Sheriff John, right, going around collecting all those taxes. Well, he was making the coffers bigger for King John and all of the wealthy elite, I am assuming. And so he is a hero in the eyes of the royal beholden and so you know so so the D D stuff um you know it's it's such it's such an interesting such an interesting kind of lens to tell stories through because you have so paladins for example right so let's take the paladin so i don't know if you're familiar with paladin class right is usually someone who has a high moral duty or a high calling and has kind of committed themselves to this deity this calling this being whatever it may be right and so paladins are always really fun to mess with when you're the de- like the dungeon master right when you're the person kind of running the show yeah because you just want to non-stop like challenge this person's faith and in challenging someone's faith you are able to see how far someone is willing to go before they either a sacrifice themselves for the greater good or b become selfish and only look out for themselves very rarely is there like a middle ground right it's kind of like that old question like if there's a bus full of people it's going to hit a bunch of people do you turn the bus or do you push the people out of the way it's a lose-lose situation um and so in a larger scale right when you start to talk about films i then bring in villains Right. And that is something that's really important is that a hero is only good as their villain. Right. And I'm a huge Marvel fan, for example. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, so. Same. So, you know, there's a lot of very flat villains. Right. It's just a one off. Thor has to fight this dark elf. Mm-hmm. Who? What? Huh? I mean, isn't that one of the Doctor Who's? I guess that's cool. Right. But that's that is a very weird, superficial kind of film. Right. One of my favorite Marvel films, and not for the reason many people kind of expect, is going to be like the first Black Panther film, where you have this character of Eric Killmonger, right, who's just kind of like basically a highly trained person who the U.S. government spent probably a million dollars training, fictionally, of course, right, training to become this ultimate killer, this swear of governments, this assassin, right, this person. And their whole idea 
was to take this knowledge and give it to those who could not fight for themselves, traditionally going to be third world countries, poor nations, right? And uh-huh. to give them the ability to push back and give them the ability to become more equal, right? To bring themselves in a higher status to meet the Western world, the European world, whatever, however you want to classify the other part of the world. And so I really identified with Eric Killmonger, right? I mean, I love the hero. I'm like, you know, it's, I always joke with my, with my partner, Sarah, right? She's like, you know, she's like, who would you be if you were a superhero? And I'm like, Iron Man, obviously Iron Man, right? You put on the suit, you fly around, it's a good time. You're super smart, got tons of money. You can make this film program amazing, right? Have lots of fun, <laughs> um, right? But it's just, you know, that's, that would be like the immediate, you know, character that I would identify with. But no one ever asked, if you were to be a villain, who would it be? Right. Because no one ever thinks that way. And so another another, you know, very popular villain is like Darth Vader. Right. And one of the reasons I love Darth Vader, understand Darth Vader is you have like, you know, so so in Darth Vader's mind, the world, the universe is in chaos and only through he and the emperor's strong will, death of millions. Right. Will the empire will the galaxy will the universe come to order where there is no crime there is no violence everyone speaks the same language very hegemonic very monolistic right everyone's kind of doing the same thing and in part of me the freedom fighter rebel right says yeah screw that nobody wants any of that right Uh but then when you say well wait a minute so you're saying that the empire comes in here and then there's no more abject poverty there's no more murder there's no more crime hmm well, when you phrase it like that, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so that's that's something I find that's really interesting. And again, that's why I kind of use that D&D model because, yeah. you know, the D&D 5th edition, they give you like monster book and character books and all these different kind of resources to help fill in those, uh, you know, those, those missing parts. Another really good example is to get you to think empathetically. And that's something that a lot of us really struggle to do unless we're sitting in the room with someone, right? Or watching a film and it connects with us in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So here's the scenario, right? And we're gonna we're gonna modernize the the dungeons to a more modern time, right? So so have you ever driven down a road, right? And especially in Springfield, and you're going the speed limit, and someone like whips around you and goes fifty because you're going too slow, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So what's the first thought you have on that person? Uh, that they're impatient, right? <laughs> I mean, asshole comes to my mind. <laughs> yeah. like, what an asshole, right? Like, why would you transgress me? You know, I'm following the law, right? There's uh-huh. a whole lot of thoughts go through your mind. The one thought that probably never crosses your mind is, oh, I bet they had Chipotle and they need to get home. <laughs> they got to get home because if not, they're going to shart the car and it's going to be disgusting because you can never get that out of a car seat, right? <laughs> no matter how hard you try, you got to change the whole seat, right? So, <laughs> right? So, but so when you, if you were to assign that message, that idea, that, that excuse, the justification for that person to trespass, transgress upon you by whipping around you and flying by at 60 miles an hour, you're able to take a step back and be a little more empathetic and be like, I hope yeah. you get home, man. I hope you got TP. <laughs> going to be a hard time if you don't have TP, right? But instead, we don't do that. And so part of storytelling, part of being a filmmaker, part of being a storyteller is to create these characters, these situations, these plots, these these kind of real world examinations of how we would interact, or in the case of D&D, how we playing another character would react to these kinds of situations. And so when you pull that into your script writing, into your directing of actors, you can elicit, you can elicit a much stronger performance from that actor if you can say, okay, so instead of hitting a mark and screaming your line, which can end up really weird on set, so the director, so I'll give you an example, I've been on sets where an actor will say, 
don't do that again. And the director comes up and says, no, no, man, I need you to do it louder. And he steps back there and says, oh, action. Don't do it again. Cut. No, no, man, I need you to do it louder. And this goes on for 10 minutes until the director's going, like this. Say it like this. And the actor's like, like this. Right? <laughs> and it just, and meanwhile, everyone on set who's not in that little dynamic duo is going, what is going on right now? Why are they screaming <laughs> at each other? This is my job. Right? Like what, right? The reverse of that is... Put yourself in this position. This is who you are. You're not the guy in the car driving the speed limit, going home after a normal day of work. You're the guy in the racing car that's going around saying, I'm going to explode over this car <laughs> and it's going to be disgusting. What I try to do is really get students to understand that if you put yourself in that other person's position, not only do you become a better human being, <laughs> right, but you also write stronger character. You write mm. stronger story. When an audience member watches the character make a decision that they, they seem is antithetical to who they are as a person, we understand because they've been presented with a situation that has made them violate that alignment. And when they do, it's not a shock to the audience. We understand it. Now, the reverse of that is intentionally doing it, intentionally breaking a character so your audience at home is like, whoa, mine exploded. What just what? <laughs> right. And then back in the non-streaming days where you had to sit on an episode once a week, uh -huh. right? It gave you a full week to sit and marinate with mm. it and be like, oh God, what's going to happen when they come back? Is he going to be like, is he still going to be the president or is he going to be, you know, a bum because yeah. he did this thing? A little more suspense. Yeah. Right. I love it. Speaking of all of the, um, the writing and the producing, um, the writer strike comes to my mind. Um, and I know that a part of it, a part of the negotiations is um, the uh, AI conversation. Um, and that affects um, the industry that you're preparing students to go into and yeah. stuff. So how do you talk about that in the, in the classroom? And yeah, what do you think will happen? <sighs> so we're yeah. going from a magic wand <laughs> right. question to a crystal ball question. Right on. Okay, so to back up a little bit, right? So, okay, so back up a little bit. So what happened to me is I got out of the Navy in 2003. I went to Southern Illinois University at Carbondale for two years, and then I went to England to study abroad, stayed there, finished my degree, got half a master's degree became, before it became $2 to one British pound. I couldn't afford it anymore and came <laughs> back home in late 2007, right when the writer's strike was happening last. Oh, okay. Right? So there was no yeah. work for me, and I got my, my degrees in film, television, and stuff. You know, I've been working in England a lot uh, while I was over there for school. Um, so I did a lot of reality TV, and you know, if you're into that and you're a reality TV junkie, then you get ready for this fall because it's going to be nonstop wall-to-wall -wall uh. reality TV because it is unscripted, and most of the time, the the act actors on them are not guild members. Not yet. They could technically, hypothetically, get into the guild after being on that show for so many days yeah. or hours, right, for the guild qualifications. So you've got people who work on those shows who are not. What is, how are they, are they conflicted, do you think? Do they support the strike, but they're working anyway to produce con content? Well, if you're asking, like, Real Housewives of any city, no. I probably don't <laughs> think shit, right? They're just like, come film me being obnoxious, right? I mean, that's the whole premise of the show, right? Yeah. Um, I think that... Um, <laughs> It's hard, right? I yeah, don't want to yeah. crush anyone's dreams who might be listening to this, right? But you should know that unscripted television is scripted, I would say, 60% of the time. Uh, they'll have, if not outright <laughs> dialogue, they will have, like, situations that are like, we want to put you in this situation sure. and see how you react. Now, every producer out there is going to be like, that's not how it is. We just turn the cameras on and we let them go, right? 
you know how boring that TV show would be? It'd be people like writing checks to pay bills, checking Facebook. It'd be boring. It'd be yeah. just boring, right? Uh, so they have to kind of institute this kind of drama to make the show. Of course. So, um, you know, and so so that deal did a lot better. So, so from what I understand, and I have a couple of friends who are also striking right now. The two major fears, right? The two major concerns are streaming and AI, mm-hmm. right? So when it comes to streaming, right now, people usually, actors and producers, well, some producers, it kind of depends. So let me give you a really quick nutshell, right, of how this kind of works. Uh, A really good example of this is going to be Scarlett Johansson last year with the Black Widow movie. Okay, it's like one of the best examples I can give, which is very prevalent and relevant to the question you just asked about the unions. So a lot of actors, um, it depends on the studio, right? So well, let me back this up. So let's say that I'm an independent producer, right? And I've got a, a low, no-budget film is almost $3 million now, so it's still a butt-ton of money, right? But I don't have ScarJo money. There's no way that I can hire Scarlett Johansson to be in my film, right? Not with the money that I have. But let's say that her agent, her manager, even herself, reads the script, and they believe in the project. And what can happen is ScarJo will come back and say, hey, I will take the union minimum, which means like the bare minimum you can pay like a certain kind of actor with a status in SAG, this much money to do your film because I believe in it. But I would like back-end percentage points or uh, distribution royalties or um, uh, syndication or rerun uh, royalties, right? So a good example of that would be Sir Patrick Stewart's, right? Sir Pat Stu, one of my favorite actors of all times. Anytime Star Trek The Next Generation is shown anywhere on TV, he gets a small royalty check. Now, granted, it's pennies or dollars to the hour so he probably has to be seen a lot to get like a thousand dollar check but that's only from reruns and syndication not from merchandising voice acting all the other things so what happened to scarlett johansson was they took the film the black widow movie and they did a limited theatrical release and in her contract she was owed back end percentage points so after the film went through theatrical run she was supposed to get a percentage of the overall box office intake right right as, as part of her payment but instead of doing that, Disney decided to put it theatrically as well as release it on Disney+. Plus, and they allowed people to pay $30 to basically get it before it would be released on streaming, right? Which we happen to do because we love the movies. We want to support Scarlett Johansson, right? We love the character. Our family does. So um, the problem was, though, is that in the contract, Scarlett Johansson saw none of the $30 every time someone bought the film from Disney+, Plus because that wasn't in the contract. And so she was shortchanged a bunch of cash because of the limited and very very small time window that that movie was in theatrical releases so she had every right to come back to disney and be like i'm sorry you violated our contract this is not this i did i didn't accept this like this is what we agreed to and now you are reneging you are taking this money and you are not going to give it to me um but basically you know he he pulled some legal maneuvering and pissed off not only her but some other industry people so taking an example like that and applying it to today's today's strike makes total sense Mm -hmm. right so as it is right now most actors not all some have really good agents and have enough status to come back around and say i want back ends percentage points so the problem is though is that like Netflix, let's take Netflix for example. Netflix is very hesitant to release its numbers of how popular a show is, right? They may give you some guesstimation. They may give you an estimation. When you go to Netflix, they'll have that Q line now in mind that says like the top 10 or the top like watch Netflix shows. But when you click on it, it doesn't give you those hard numbers, right? And so one of the things that actors are trying to do, as well as writers, is say, okay, Netflix, we know you keep track of how many times this is watched. And much like royalties on TV, video, on demand, other sources of broadcast are getting the, showing these media, 
we want a cut of that. It's not fair for you to give us like the bare minimum up front and then you get the back end percentage and every view that you get, you get all these subscribers, you get all this cash, but it's my work you're putting on the screen. I'm the actor, I'm the writer, I'm the one who created that content for you. And so that's one of the major things, right, that that is being addressed is that there isn't a streaming guideline, standardized streaming guideline for actors, right? Or writers for that example, right? Same thing, every time uh, an episode of Star Trek airs, the writer should get some kind of royalty depending on the individual contract. And that's part of the problem. There's so many individual contracts. And I feel like, not that I would defend Bob Iger's comments recently about the strikes being like untainable and unreasonable, um, but the problem I think he sees is that without a standardization of like, okay, for Netflix, every time uh, an episode is watched, we're gonna send this actor 10 cents. Right. And 10 cents isn't a lot. But if you multiply that by like a million viewers, then that monthly check can get pretty big. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But because each individual has different back ends, different percentage points, different kinds of, of ways of manipulating how to get paid after something after you originally has been paid for something. Mm -hmm. Right. It's going to slow things down um, on, on that with A.I., um, it, I actually was listening to NPR uh, the last couple of days, and one of the interesting things they pointed out, as well as a few friends of mine, is that like AI can generate background actors. So right now, right, right now the way it is, is if I am a major Hollywood studio and I'm going to make a film, I have my principal cast and then I have my, um, probably, so you have principal cast, you have like minor bit parts, right? It's so like the bartender who says, here's your beer, right? <laughs> Not like a lot of dialogue, but some small speaking parts. And then you have background non-speaking actor parts. There is a fear, right? A lot of sci-fi big battle shows were to do this. So back to Game of Thrones, right? That those yeah. giant Lord battles, of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, right? All that CG in there. So and that there isn't to say there's humans in costumes and doing it as well, but it's multiplied by AI, right? This this computer generated information or, or graphic imagery. The problem is, right, is that AI and rendering of computer graphics is getting so good that I can just eliminate all my extras and only have three actors in the front doing all of the action and everyone else in the room is fake, mm -hmm. right? That kills a whole industry. Like yeah. background actors is a humongous industry. Yeah, I mean, and that's, uh, you don't have to fast forward the tape very far to think like, well, background actors, why not all the actors? Why not the scenes? Why do we need people moving cameras? Why do we need cameras? Yeah. You know, if everything could just be computer generated. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's so they're trying to um, regulate that ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> that's basically it. Right. So, you know. It's people over profits, profits over people. And that's really what it comes down to. You know, mm -hmm. you have these major media conglomerates. And I think part of the problem, and this is my academic hat, right? Part of the problem is that we just keep having these media companies buying each other, mm -hmm. right? So Disney was already huge, the behemoth. Then it picked up Nat Geo and Fox and Marvel and Star Wars. And they spent way too much money. And that's why they're in trouble right now, mm -hmm. right? Because they're kind of like, uh-oh, maybe we, maybe we let go of ESPN. Maybe we let go of ABC. All these acquisitions. So the problem is, is that the more centralized those studios are, the less bargaining power actors have because yeah. all the studios will get together and be like, cool, we don't need you. See what we did with Peter Cushing, Cushing, Peter Cushing in Rogue One, how we had some other actor stand in and put some CG points on him, and then we went in and CG Peter Cushing's face over the actor to play Grand Moff Tarkin, right, in the Death Star creation. <laughs> Nerd alert. Uh, right? So, you know, and, and when I saw it in the theaters, it was jarring, 
right? And then when I saw Princess Leia at the very end frame, like right before the opening of A New Hope, uh-huh. if you watch that frame, although it might have been changed now, but if you watch like the theatrical original Blu-ray, her eyes look dead, like soulless, right? Because the computer wasn't able to bring that spark of life. And if you look really close, you're like, Jesus, what, what, what is she looking at, right? <laughs> but that's the fear, Right. The fear is, is that we have modulating software that can mimic my voice, that can take a sample of my voice and the AI algorithm can match it pretty closely. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you have a you have a, so so same thing. Right. So so back to Sir Pat Stu, one of my favorite actors. So he probably has a million, well, not a million, but like a thousand hours worth of dialogue that has been spoken in multiple mediums. So what keeps a computer programmer from basically feeding all those dialogue lines into a computer, rewriting the sentences that they want, really do a nice CG job, put that that in the, the actor's mouth absolutely and they can do it and here's what's funny is that when someone's like well how could they do that well when you sign a contract with a production company film company whatever it may be mm-hmm. you are releasing your likeness your voice in any distribution marketing ad campaigns commercials like you sign your likeness and your voice away when you sign those contracts to produce these these films some and i don't know it doesn't happen as much as it used to back in the day so back in the day you used to have like um Try to think of like a so so you'd have like a uh, Liz Taylor right Elizabeth Taylor fam- famous actress and so she would sign a like ten year deal with Universal right to the point where she'd live on the Universal lot and she was only exclusively for Universal for ten years. Well, what if they did that right now with someone like Scarlett Johansson and they're like we're, we're we want we want to lock you into Disney for ten years. We don't want you to work with anybody else but us. So she signs that contract. And in that contract, it may say that Disney has the ability to repurpose her likeness, her voice, computer generated, and there's nothing she can do so long as she's paid that SAG minimum for the original performance, Hmm. right? Or paid separately because it's not her performance, it's a use of her likeness. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get to funny things like um, ESPN sports games, right? So like college players, it's the same thing, right? So you have these really outstanding college players in college football who then, there's likeness, their number, sometimes their name, but if not their name, the likeness, the number, their physicality all shows up in this game and that player got paid nothing, right? Because they're a public figure or whatever you want to classify it. Hmm. It's the same thing, right, for actors. It's like, you can't use me without me being compensated for that yeah yeah yeah. well that is a lot to work out yeah (laughs) oh that's why the the strike has taken so long right Hmm. but as a storyteller as a teacher of storytellers it is important for me to get them to think about those kind of larger questions yeah that's cool. Um, I love that. The storytelling as psychological investigation or self-discovery. Um, and, and it seems like the better the story, the more different readings there are of it. You know, different, like you said, people from different times in their life will get different things out of it with each watch, people yeah. from different backgrounds. So it's like a, a Rorschach test yeah. um, for whoever you happen to be at that time. Right. It really is, right? And, and that's the biggest thing. I, I always tell people, like, you know, who you are in your 20s is not who you're going to be in your 40s. And it's important to keep that in mind because anything you have absolute faith and confidence in in this moment and this time yeah. can totally be challenged in the next hour. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Cash. You can always contact me directly with comments and suggestions. Please tell your friends about the Making Cash podcast. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Making Cash. And remember, we're not in it for the money.